So, is it my turn to start this show? Yes. Oh, OK, then. Hello, uh, this is Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And, uh, Josie, by the way, I haven't asked you, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, I'm still reading Hope in the Dark because every day I read about three pages of it. Is that the Rebecca Solnit? such Solnick a great book. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad they republished it. It's, it's t- changed my life. Yeah. It's yeah. changed my life. My favourite line in that, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, it's something like, um, hope is not a lottery ticket you sit on your sofa clutching, hoping your number comes up. Hope is an axe you use to break down the door in an emergency. Yes. I think of that line at least once a week. L- fucking love Rebecca Sarno. Well, what I'm a little bit worried about is if you haven't finished reading it because you're only doing it three pages at a time and doing it really slowly, what if it has a twist at I know. the end? Well, this is what I've been saying on stage. <laughs> That's what I I've been recommending it to everyone and then I say, like, I'm really worried that at the very end she'll say, and the true hope yeah. left in the dark is white supremacy. And I'll be like, no! She'll just be like, and that's why I've decided to hang myself the moment I write this line. Yes! The end. That's it's what I've been, saying. I've been saying. We should all kill ourselves, which I don't think at all. Um, yeah, be careful. If that's taken out of context and spread around social media, brilliant. Well, thanks very much. Meant, so welcome to it's the worst the thing I could possibly think ever. of. Book shambles because of Josie's loose-lipped, no. suicidal. But I'm reading. No, that's not what I think. I'm also reading um, uh, my brilliant friend by Ellen ah, Ferranti. Finally, that's the two, I wrote down two books to recommend. Really? And literally, look, they're those two. Well, we don't need that's you. Incredible. You can go. Yeah, I can fuck off. Um, yeah. Have you read so, Paradise Built in Hell by? I Rebecca should introduce Solnick? you no, first. I'm oh, sorry, Robin. Yeah, I'm this speaking, is. Uh, I'm so a disembodied random voice. We are <laughs> also joined by uh, the uh, author of Chase and the Scream, uh, Johan Hari. That's right. Hooray, hello. Hi. Um, so your uh, so you've what was the other one? My oh, brilliant so friend. Paradise Built in Hell is Rebecca Solnick's book. It's incredible. She was in. An earthquake in San Francisco, and she noticed something, which is that everyone in this earthquake responded solidaristically. Oh, and completely! Else, she right? says that in Hope in the Dark, doesn't she? Yeah, exactly. I think she writes this afterwards, and it's partly inspired by that insight in Hope in the Dark. And then she um, basically started studying and research and discovered that uh, this is a cross-cultural universal. Everyone in the face of a disaster reacts solidaristically for a couple of days, and people very often remember that moment when they come together when you leave behind your individualism you leave behind your kind of petty concerns and you just help other people it's this incredible moment and the book then becomes this investigation of okay how do we hold on to that when we're not in an earthquake when we're not in a tsunami it's it's an actually it's funny robin and i were talking before we went on air and robin was saying you know oh people are arseholes and I know you were speaking satirically and i was thinking that book actually really helped me change how i think about human nature that that is just beneath the surface the yeah. whole time. I've... Now, of course, there are really dark things below the surface mm. as well, but that impulse to come together and just... And people, if you speak to people... Go, I've been to, weirdly, by coincidence, I've been to loads of places that have had natural disasters recently. And you talk to people about it, and people, of course, remember it as a tragedy. People die, these are awful things. But people always remember it with an incredible sense of hope. As well, you think about where we are in London, what do we remember as the greatest moment in the history of this city, right? OK, it was horrific. The Nazis bombed us. That, tens of thousands of people died. And yet we remember it as this incredible moment precisely because it's a moment when we all came together ah but you see there's also interesting alternative histories which say yeah 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 there was lots of lovely blitz spirit but now let's have a look at some of the other really terrible (laughs) things and really hideous crimes so I think what you need is uh, a perpetual um earthquake machine very low level perpetual <laughs> earthquake machine or indeed um simon ings who, who we've had on this podcast in, in one of his first books he looks at this uh it, it's an idea where um uh, augmented reality exists directly in your eyes and the illusion can be created of london as a flooded city in, in, in catastrophe or pokemon go yeah what's your favorite simon ings book that you'd recommend 
Um, well, do you know the one I reckon? I just want. I only started the one because it's a non-fiction I don't book. Know who he Wolves is, is very interesting. He's he's a guy who's written. He's he's the arts editor of uh, um, the New Scientist. He's started off in kind of cyberpunk world. Wolves is a very interesting book that people uh, uh, really went for. And he's also written non-fiction books on the eye. And his most recent book is about Stalin and the Scientist, which is kind oh. of looking at. Uh, um, well, it started off with him looking at some of the myths of presumptions made about certain scientists under Stalin. So like Lysenko? Uh, Lysenko, yeah, and basically saying that Lysenko was actually didn't really have that much effect on anyone and certainly really? wasn't. He said he, he wasn't a nice guy, but actually in terms of his effect, and he talks about Alexander Luria, who he sees as being the oh. kind of the, the, the parent of uh, popular, effective science writing and use it in turning science into uh, a, a story for, for lots of people. But, yeah, but that, that idea, so I think that, you know, Bertrand Russell talked about the idea that if, if, there's, a, if there's a perpetual sense of an alien invasion, then we all come together. Yeah, but you say that, but then anti-immigration stoking up in the mail is a perpetual sense of an alien invasion. And no, that no, 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 but that's a different that. one, you see, because this alien is a fictional alien. Oh, and what this alien does... No, no, not an alien. It's an alien from outer space, right? So then it's like we're all humans. So then all humans come we're together in the, the same way as, you know, there are times when the Manchester United and the Manchester City fans can come well, together. Can I recommend a book? Uh, there's a book about... Uh, that touches on that that I think is really extraordinary. It's actually kind of middle-brow book in some ways, but it's got this extraordinary bit in it. It's called Citizens of London. I'm blanking on the name of the historian. She's an American female historian. And it's the story of five Americans who've come to London in those nine months between Britain joining the war and the Americans joining the war. When Britain, we forget this now, but how close Britain came to having to surrender, right? We were nearly starved out. And these five Americans come, some of them... I think a problem already here. So some of them um, really strongly believe we should join and some of them are persuaded by what they see. And Ed Morrow, I might be getting some of the details wrong, but Ed Morrow, the famous broadcast journalist, you know, most famous, but he's the guy who says to Joseph McCarthy, do you have no decency, sir? You know, that, wow. that one. He comes here as a correspondent. I think he was quite sceptical about the Second World War and he sees this thing. that The National Gallery was emptied during the war because obviously, you know, bombs were falling all around and it would have been an incalculable cultural loss if it had been blown up. And so... Lots of people during the bombing raids didn't like to go down and hide in the underground or the bomb shelters. So they put a grand piano in the National Gallery and there was a German concert pianist, a socialist German who'd fled the Nazis, and she would perform free concerts of German music while German bombs fell all around London and thousands of Londoners came and cheered her. And Ed Murrow went and saw this and he was like, wow, wow. And he realised no one in Berlin was listening to a British person playing British music and cheering them. But that's partly because our music is shitter than their music. <laughs> oh, also, excuse me, <laughs> Elgar, thank you. The, um, yeah, Vaughan Williams, yeah, thank Elgar's you. Elgar's not better than Wagner. Well, it depends where you're cycling. I do like Elgar. I do like Elgar. Elgar would be significantly less likely to gas you as well. So you know, Oof. swings and roundabouts. I like there's, I like Vaughan Williams, Finzi. They're all British. There's they? another, uh, and then we get more recently to Peter Maxwell Davis, etc. But all oh, right, I was just making a little bit of British joke. Yeah, well, well, actually, <laughs> well, actually, yeah. well, actually, interesting. It was a little bit racist, wasn't it? So shut your face. Well, it'd be um, xenophobic, wouldn't it? The oh, the um. I was going to say, another interesting, Matthew Sweet wrote a book which was about the hotels of London in World War Two. Oh, really? And that is fascinating because that's about the fact that, again, that idea of bringing everyone together, that, in fact, many of the very, very rich went, no, 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 we still want the Savoy, etc. This is how we want to live. And then there was a bit of a kind of rebellion because they wouldn't allow the servants and the people into the cellars. 
during and they were like, hang on a minute. And so there was an interesting, you know, again, that that there are many good things that happen, but also it's quite interesting to know those other stories. There's a great thing by Dennis Potter. I remember going to see uh, a screening of the two plays that he wrote about kind of Oxbridge spies, uh, one called Blade on the Feather and the other one called Traitor with John LeMessurier, which is an incredible piece of work. Both of them are great pieces of work. Um, uh, it was being introduced by his producer, uh, Kenneth Trodd, and Kenneth Trodd said that he read this beautiful bit from Potter on Potter, the Faber and Faber mm. collection, where Potter said that he believed that the least patriotic people were the upper class. He said the the working class and the middle class, all, all that. He said, but the upper class, what, what he saw, what he was trying to show in these plays was the most important thing for them is remaining in control of as much as possible. So if the Nazis come over and and say, obviously you, the Earl of Salisbury, you can have, they go, oh good, as long as I've, I've still got all that, have I? And I'll have that and I'll be able to control my people from here. Mm. It's an interesting kind of This take. loops back to Rebecca Sonnet, actually, because she has a chapter about how in the planning for the war, obviously there was an expectation that Britain would be bombed, that London would be bombed. And there was an expectation that people would just go fucking crazy and they would start looting and they'd go mad and that a whole social order would collapse. And the British ruling class was astonished that people in fact came together rather than huh. kind of coming apart and rather than tearing each other down. Which goes back to why people are good and not yeah. shit. <laughs> I never thought people were bad. I always thought they were good. So That's not what you me. always say, does it? Is it? It depends how things are going. Josie, jo, so you're actually really affected. I don't know. Um, I don't know if we have to talk about the book in a second, but there's this. Uh, I wanted to tell you that, I don't know if you remember this, there's a reason why you should. About, I know, seven years ago in Edinburgh, I took my nephew to see your show when he was quite young, one of my nephews. And he, he's, he's grown up in Leyland, um, near Blackpool, which is a pretty economically depressed place, quite depoliticised in terms of how people think about politics. And your show had a really profound effect on him, and he talked about it for years afterwards. And he talked about it, and one thing that really, I think, really empowered him is that the only political messages he'd ever heard are, things are shit, you've been fucked over. You know, Leyland is obviously, it's like basically Britain's Detroit, isn't it? It was where the cars are made, and now, you know, they basically, nothing is made there. Um... And, I, and I, it really helped me to think about how to talk to young people about politics, particularly young people who are facing really tough situations. And it was precisely the joy in what you said that really, oh, I think, really thanks. stayed with him. That means a lot to me. That's great. See, I told you there was a point, didn't well, I? I don't know why you're so negative all the time, always banging on about awful people. Well, I think, firstly, I don't do that. But I think sometimes as well, like, say you're trying to... It's really hard to be confronted repeatedly with your own insignificance and lack of <laughs> achievement. So you're like, oh, I really was hoping that I could help politically, and yet here we are. You know, not that you, anyway. But that's what Hope in the Dark is all about. It's like you don't know the effects of what you're doing. Anyway, that's a bit. Exactly. There are ripple, and that there are ripple effects of your yeah. actions that you never know. Yeah, that, like that you were are, saying that yeah. bit that she mentions in Hope in the Dark about. Um, the mothers, the guy who walked past the Vietnam mothers, and that exactly. changed his Doctor Spock, Benjamin it. Spock, I think it yeah, is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that the, 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 there were these. Um, the Benjamin Spock, who was a prominent, he was kind of like the Oprah of his. I might remember misremembering some of the details years since I read the book, but if I remember rightly, Benjamin Spock. Yeah, right? he was like the Oprah of his day. Like Oprah would be the comparable political figure, right? Sure. Hugely admired. He's on the radio. He gives people advice about how to raise their kids, and what, probably the most admired person in America at the time. And he supported the Vietnam War. And one day he goes to be briefed about how well it's going. 
as they did with prominent public figures then. And it comes out and there's a group of mothers whose sons have died, like seven of them. And they're protesting, I think, in the snow and they're holding up signs. And those women remembered this as like a total humiliation, right? Mm. They'd called for every mother who had a son fighting in Vietnam to come and, fu- and join their protest and hardly anyone turned up and they went home. And even though they became a really big force later in resisting the war, they always remembered this as this incredibly low moment until totally by coincidence, one of them in the 1990s happened to read Benjamin Spock's memoir in which he describes um, going and going to this briefing and knowing something wasn't right and coming out and seeing these women protesting in the snow and thinking, ah, oh, they've got enough courage to protest and I haven't. And it haunted him. Mm. And it was partly his memory of seeing those women that made him decide to to resist the war. And then, of course, he gets put on trial along with these other people and it's this huge turning point that he comes out against it. Mm. So this thing that they thought had made absolutely no difference at all had, in fact, turned the course of human history. Now, you can say, well, the war continued for many years, but if there hadn't been a resistance movement, it would never have ended until they just completely destroyed Vietnam. So this is completely true that people... You know, it's so easy to think, oh, you know, we failed, right? And they did fail in one sense. The war did continue for, I think that was in 1965, it continues for another seven years. Mm. And yet they succeeded in the most extraordinary way that they never knew. And there are ripple effects. Like, you wouldn't have known about my nephew. I'm happening to see you now. You know, we see each other now and then. But you wouldn't know that we all have ripple effects. The only thing that guarantees you won't have a ripple effect is if you just don't do anything. Yeah, yeah. That's the, it's Bob Crow, isn't it? What? If you fight, you might lose, but if you don't fight, you've definitely lost. Yeah, but Chomsky calls it, he says hope is like Pascal's wager. You know, Pascal's wager is, uh, in philosophy, is you may as well believe in God, because if you die and there was no God, well, you've not lost anything, but if you die and you get to the gates of heaven, you go, oh, I believed in you, mate. I mean, I don't actually agree with Pascal, but um, Chomsky says hope is like that. You may as well believe in it, because if you do, you've got a chance of succeeding, and if you just give up... And also you've got more chance of having fun. Yeah, Yeah, just in case you forget what you're meant to be thinking. Oh yeah, hope. There it is. I also as well, like you've got (laughs) no... It's You will have a better experience of being alive if you try to be hopeful and positive. Exactly. You personally will have more fun on a daily basis. People will be kinder to you. You will have better personal relationships. You will have more worthwhile, exciting experiences if you're positive as opposed to bitter. I actually think this is a really interesting way of arguing with the right as well, because one of the things I've been doing, obviously um, I've been you know, arguing um, since my book came out about a year and a half ago with various people about um, whether we should treat drug users and drug addicts with more compassion and how you do that and all of that. It's very interesting. When I've come up against people who are like... Uh, I, I don't give a shit about these people, right? I don't care about them. You can do all sorts of things and make the case for compassion, but one of the things I found that actually does kind of work, I hope, and I'm interested in looking at research at this, I'm going to do this, is saying, you know, you're going to be weak one day. You might not become addicted, you probably won't, but you're going to be old, unless you're unlucky and you die young. Mm. You're going to, you might be sick, you might become disabled. And you will have more confidence that you will be treated well in the future when you are weak and vulnerable if you respond to other people's weakness and vulnerability with love and compassion. Mm. And there's something about actually that it does... Every, so the most traumatising thing that a baby can hear is another baby crying. There's really strong evidence on this, right? All babies who can hear react really negatively when they hear another baby crying. Mm. And there's something about you have to cauterise a part of your own humanity to say, I don't care about this other suffering person. You have to unlearn that instinct. And so much of what the rights discourse, not all, I don't want to caricature them, but so much of the rights discourse is about saying, the following individuals do not deserve our empathy. Yeah. Right? The following individuals are not as... 
okay, I'm caricaturing if I say it this way, but this is the underlying premise, I think, is are not as fully human as us. So think about, for example, I don't know, the belief that homeless people who are uh, who are begging are fraudsters and charlatans who actually go home to like a nice palace at the end of the day, right? Yeah. That's actually, I think that's partly a defence against vulnerability and against compassion, right? Because actually, truth is, at some level we know that guy's there and I'm here basically out of luck, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe I've done some things in my life that are good and some things that are bad, but basically it's pretty much luck, right? Yeah, yeah. And you have to defend yourself against that. You have to put barriers. And one of them is just the barriers of dehumanization to invent these narratives. And I think one way of unpicking that, we can kind of angrily debunk them, right? Which makes us feel good. But I actually think pushes them back towards that rage. I actually think to go to go... Actually, I think that you are better than this. Again, I wouldn't put it like that because it would be exceptionally aggravating. But, you know, and I actually think you do have feelings of love and compassion and you are defending yourself against that. And I actually think your life will be better if you can find... And we all have feelings where we deny access, love and compassion, right? So it's not like they do it and we don't, right? We do it the whole time. The way that I, I was passionately in favour of us remaining in the European Union, I'm devastated by what's happened... But I found the way that a lot of people on our side talked about Brexit voters afterwards, who include my dad, was horrific and disastrous. And it's like, we're people who would say we should empathise with, you know, uh, people with severe drug addictions, people who go and fight for ISIS, people who commit murder. And yet, we don't think they should empathise with people who are, you know, expressing their distress in this way. And I think um, these are things that I think it's important for us to think about. The uh, rules theory of justice. We just need a nice little pocketbook version of that. Now, because we were on this, this was something that I did say I wanted to bring up because I think if we don't bring it up, it's going to be difficult for some listeners, which is talking briefly about, because both of us know writers and journalists who uh, would probably question us having you on the show. And I just wanted to quickly deal with this now before we go on to the books because of what happened in 2011. And I wonder, first of all, whether you think uh, people can find out what, what what happened. But it was it was your fall from grace as a, as as a journalist for I suppose two different reasons. Um, do you understand why people might still remain angry now uh, about what happened over that period of time? Oh, sure. Um, I think when you do something wrong, part of the price you pay is exactly what you're saying and it's right that you should pay that price right i don't want to live in a world where journalists could take quotes from someone else and act as if they've been said directly to them um you know and get away with it that would not be a world i wanted to live in um and so of course it's right that you pay a price and i think you know it it should carry a big cost doing that and part of the cost of that should be that people are skeptical uh, when I was writing Chasing the Screamers, I was obviously conscious of that. So uh, one of the things I did is, um, you know, I put on the website for the book uh, all the audio of all the quotes that I quote. You know, you can hear them being said directly to me. And as people are kind of reading along, they can they can hear those things uh, being said. And, you know, they can hear them being said to me and, and that kind of thing. And obviously the book was very extensively fact-checked. But no, I think it's it's right and appropriate that people should be sceptical if you do something wrong and mean or cruel or uh, unethical of course you should be you should and I should pay a big price for that do you think just one one more on this which is 
talking to a couple of people, they actually had less. They, they were less bothered by uh, you know taking uh, interview quotes from other mm. sources because they felt that they're still telling the story. And, and in fact, it was the I suppose called sock puppetry thing. Now, because we were just talking about empathy, are you able to look back at when you were doing some of those things under a, a different name and? Are you able to wonder or explain to yourself why you did it? Are you able to? And I'm thinking again because you're dealing in your your book, Chasing the Scream, which has been tremendously successful and I've, uh, and and created a great deal of interest. Um, you talk. There is a lot of empathy in that. And do you think that that experience has changed you? And indeed, that whether you wonder whether, as a person now, you can look at that self from six, seven years ago, and go right. I think I can work out who that human being was. I don't want to give a glib answer to that. I think one of the things I decided to do when the book came out was to not... I think if you start telling a story about yourself publicly, about a thing you did wrong or things you did wrong, it can easily become self-justifying or self-excusing. So one of the things I decided to do was to not do that, was to not, uh, you know, and, and there isn't a narrative that justifies it, right? You do something wrong. Of course, there are reasons why you do things wrong. There's reasons why everyone who does something wrong does something, but that doesn't justify or excuse it. So, of course, that's something I've thought about a lot and thought about deeply and discussed deeply with um, the people I love. I'm not, for that reason, I'm not going to kind of do that, do that, do that here. I'm also resistant to the other aspect of that, which is to kind of tie it up into a neat little redemptive narrative where you go, well, I did something wrong and then I learned that that's bad. And then I look, I think that's actually kind of insulting to the people that you harm to present the harm you've done to them as a learning experience to you. I just think that's insulting to them. And I think it's overly neat. I think um, it doesn't have to be neat, does it? You can still look and go, I wonder. I mean, because I sometimes think one of the problems with the Internet and our communication on that is everything can be so immediate in a way that previously, if you had to fax something or deliver it or whatever it might be, you have the extra time to think. And therefore, we are currently living in a time where there can be very speedy errors made. And once they're out there, that's it. And then you may well they may well fester and remain for longer than required. That's something about even the actions of the simplicity in which we, we might be able to go onto a website and do something like that. Not really, because it was, you know, it'd be tempting to kind of enter into a self-justification. Like, but to be honest, it was done but over I'm a long period of time. I'm not even thinking about self-justification. No, 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 I'm I understand, I understand about... what you're saying, Robin, but I think it was done over a long period of time when there was plenty of time to reflect afterwards. And, right. You know, so I don't think I can, I don't think I can claim that that was a significant factor in, 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 in what I did wrong, really. And so can you understand that there are people who are left there who still kind of... Uh, sure, you know... part of the price you pay when you fuck up is there'll be people who don't want to hear what you have to say ever again. And that's how it should be. You know, now, you know, uh, obviously I'm pleased that there were, as you say, other people who did want to hear what I wanted to say, but I'm aware there would have been more had I not fucked up in that way. And that's that's right, that's appropriate. So when the book came out, because it has been... And I mean, I, I did an event with Leap, who uh, you, I'm sure you know. Mm. the, the uh, Law Enforcement always, Against Prohibition. Yeah, yeah, which is a very interesting group. Uh, started in, in America, as far as I know, now mm. in the UK as well. Quite high up uh, police officers and people within the police uh, wanting to see reforms mm. within our drug laws. Uh, reforms that would be seen by probably all political parties now as, uh, you know, extremely liberal. And, and they approach it with quite a body of evidence in their own personal experience. 
experience. So were you, with things like that, the, the book seems to have really built momentum in a lot of different areas. There are a lot of people who... So when you, when you brought the book out, um, you must have... Were you almost thinking, maybe no one will read it? Maybe this won't go anywhere? And yet it seemed to get picked up very quickly. People said there's something very interesting here. Yeah, I mean, I was aware, even setting aside what we were just talking about, I was aware the reality of most books is that no one reads them. Right? That even setting aside people who've you know done done things that are wrong. Um, yeah, I was very conscious of that, of course. <clears throat> and we all know people who've written amazing books that no one read. Yeah. And uh, yes, I was conscious of that. I was conscious of uh, obviously lots of things. Ultimately, you know, I kind of you've got to think about the AA thing, haven't you? Accept the things you cannot change, change the things you can, have the wisdom to know the difference. Um, there's some legitimate criticisms of AA, but I think that is a really profound piece of wisdom. And I think um, you you can do your best to promote your book, but ultimately you don't have any power over whether it will get picked up or not. And I'm also conscious there were, you know, it was a lot of luck in that as well. It caught the wind in various places. Mm. There was a few things that went viral and a few people who championed it early on. And if they hadn't done that, I suspect it would have been unnoticed. So, And that's, again, just luck, right? You've got to have the awareness of that. But, yeah, it's been... The, I think the most moving experience of my kind of um, public life was just to see so many different people in different kind of places finding something in not so much... So the book is the stories of lots of people that I got to know or, or some people that I learned about. Well, I'd like, yeah. Where does that book start from? Because it is such an in-depth book. It goes to so many places and it obviously had, in terms of the interviewing process, what we see on the page, I imagine each one can take a very, very... I was talking to a poet who'd recently done a project with refugees, an incredible bit of work. It was on, uh, I forget the venue now, in the, in the East End. And, uh, and he said, you know, what ends up there is actually almost each conversation is three days until he gets to the point of trust and the point where uh, someone then reveals something which can be turned into quite an important narrative about their story. Yeah. And about and so in terms of the process, how did you... Well, first of all, why? Why was it drugs? Why was that the story you wanted to tell? Um, I apologise to anyone who's heard me talk about this before, but uh, uh, one of my earliest memories is of trying to, to wake up one of my, my relatives and not being able to. And um, I didn't understand why, obviously, then I was very young. But as I got older, I realised... We had drug addiction in my family, and um, when I started to write the book uh, five, five years ago, slightly arrogantly, I kind of thought, well, more than slightly arrogantly, I thought, oh, I know loads about this, right? I'd written about it loads when I was a journalist, I'd lived through it with my family, and I wrote down a list of questions that I thought, oh, this will structure how I can think about it, and I think they were... Um, <clears throat> um, we were coming up to 100 years since drugs were first banned in Britain and the US. And it's like, OK, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts 100 years ago? Why are we carrying on when it seems to not be working? Are there any alternatives that do work better? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And as I started to write, I realised I didn't know the answers to any of these things. Literally, I didn't even know where to begin. And so I decided to go on a journey that I didn't realise, obviously, it ended up taking me uh, more than three years. But what I wanted to do was to sit with people whose lives had been changed one way or another, <clears throat> by the drug war, by the alternatives to the drug war, by the best social scientists, that was what I was, subject I was trained in, and really just listen to them. You know, I'd spent so much of my life just broadcasting, you know, like, like you know, absorbing little snippets and broadcasting. What I just wanted to do was really deeply learn to listen to these people. And I ended up sitting with an incredible range of people who I could not have imagined at the start, who, who, whose stories I tell in the book, you know, from a transgendered crack dealer in, in Brooklyn, 
who I interviewed over three years, who Chino Hardin is one of the wisest, most amazing people I've ever met, um, to uh, a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, um, uh, Rosalio Retta, he's now in prison in, in Texas, to... Um, you know, a homeless street addict in Vancouver who started an uprising there that transformed his city to uh, the only country that's decriminalised all drugs from cannabis to crack with incredible results, Portugal. And I think the thing that I learned from those people, firstly, it goes back to exactly what we were saying before. This is a wankier and more pretentious way than I put it in the book. But it occurred to me, you know, when I stopped working at The Independent and I've written columns for years and arguments, that was my mode of engaging with the world, right, was to argue. I kind of thought, did I ever change anyone's mind about anything? I'm not being masochistic about it. I think sometimes I told people things they didn't already know, and that's a useful thing to do. I think um, <clears throat> sometimes people who didn't know what they thought maybe were helped a little bit. Did I ever change anyone's mind? I thought, no, I was trying to think a lot about why. And I think partly it's because we just... I was engaging with the world in the wrong way. I was thinking polemically when we need to think narratively. You need to sit with people and hear their stories. One of the reasons why the war on drugs continues, one of the reasons why so many... Now, the war on drugs I would not consider particularly right-wing. It's more complicated than that. and The left-right binary is not that helpful. But one of the things, a lot of the things where the three of us really strongly agree, right-wing things continue, is partly because we've dehumanised the people at the core, right? We have dehumanised... Think about the drug war. We've dehumanised drug users. We've dehumanised drug addicts. We've dehumanised cops. We've dehumanised drug dealers. We've dehumanised people who live on the supply route countries, where actually I think the biggest horror is happening. And one of the things I thought about was meeting those people. I thought, I don't, when I'm talking to ordinary people about this subject, I don't want to argue with them. That's pointless. I want them to come and meet Chino. And I want them to come and meet Bud Osborne, the homeless street addict in Vancouver who started this uprising. I want them to meet Lee Maddox, the incredible cop in Baltimore who became my friend, who is one of the founders of Leap Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, who realised something extraordinary about the drug war. If they could sit with those people and realise that they're as human as us, right? They've got the same hopes and dreams and fears and loves as us. They won't say that their lives are irrelevant and we should pursue a policy that means they'll die or that will massively increase the chances of them dying. They won't say they don't give a shit. And that's partly based on my personal experience, right? As you know, I'm gay. Uh, The other day I showed one of my nephews, uh, my younger nephew, not the one I showed Josie, um, some of the headlines that were the front page of The Sun when I think me and Josie were about the same age, when we were teenagers about gay people, like first gay kiss in EastEnders, it's EastEnders, right? There's a great um, Derek Jarman book on that. Uh, What the hell's the name called? Uh, Trent, look up that. There was was one of Derek Jarman's many books. He he, he was quite prolific in his last few years, and he did a book which was just basically, some of it a diary, but predominantly the different media. uh, It's not, we'll find out in a moment, but it's it's an incredible catalogue, and you do kind of, it's one of those things which, again, you go, maybe maybe there is progress. Maybe there is. I'll read that Stephen Pinker again and feel feel a sense of progress. No gay A little bit of John Gray as well. No gay person of my, I mean, my if the craziest UKIP councillor tweeted the things that used to be on the front page of the Sun, they would have to resign today. Mm. When I showed that to my nephew, it looked like a dispatch from another country. The first thing he said was, did people ring the police? Was the first thing he said when he saw those headlines. He could not believe it, right? And I think, and this is one of the things, it's partly about letting people teach you their stories. So sitting with those people, and it wasn't always easy with a lot of them, and some of them, you know, some of the people, particularly I think about Rosalia Retta, who was the hitman for the... Well, between the ages of 13 and 17, he butchered or beheaded about 70 people. Oh, my God. I I know. it's uh, Well, I think the story of what's happening uh, in the supply route countries is... Obviously, addiction is very close to my heart. I think the story of what we're doing to the supply route countries is 
by far the biggest moral issue in the drug war. But anyway, I think about Rosalio, right, who obviously is in some ways a hum, but, you know, significantly harder person to identify with. There's something about letting people teach you their story. And I think sitting with all these people in so many different places, it's been 15 different countries now, you know, from, from Ciudad Juarez to Vietnam. I think one of the main things that blew my mind is almost everything we think we know about this subject is wrong, right? Drugs are not what we think they are. Uh, addiction is not what we think it is. The war on drugs is not what we think it is. And the alternatives to the war on drugs are not what we think they are. And I think there's something incredibly exciting about... So some of those things I already knew. I was never in favour of the war on drugs. I was never in favour of prohibition. It completely transformed how I think about addiction. I was just profoundly wrong about that. Um, what do you mean by that? So if you had said to me... We, we have been misinformed about what causes addiction. If you'd said to me five years ago, what causes, say, heroin addiction, I would have looked at you like you were really thick and I would have said, well, Josie, the clue's in the name. It's called heroin addiction, right? We've been told this story about addiction for the past hundred years that's become part of our common sense. I thought I had literally seen it happen in front of me, right? So we think that if we took the next uh, 20 people, uh, we, you know, we're in uh, Soho, we stopped the next 20 people on the street in Soho and we took them into this little dungeon-like studio and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month in the manner of a saw villain. At the end of that, they would all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There are chemical hooks in heroin that bodies would start to physically need, right? And at the end of it, they'd have this desperate physical craving and that's what addiction is. The first thing that alerted me to the, the fact there's not something right about that is when it was explained to me by an amazing uh, Canadian doctor called Gabo Mate. If... If, you, if any of us, we step out of this studio now and you get hit by a truck, right? God forbid, horrific loss to comedy. Um, uh, and you break your hip. You'll to be take- die as a Smith's lyric. <laughs> oh. <laughs> exactly. Better than get... <laughs> the, you know, you would be taken to whatever... St. Thomas's must be the nearest hospital. And they would inject you loads with loads of a drug called diamorphine. Mm. Diamorphine is heroin. And you'd have a great day. <laughs> it's the medical name for heroin, right? In hospitals all over Britain and Canada, people are being injected the whole time with diamorphine. If your nan's ever had a hip replacement operation, she's taken lots of heroin. She's been higher for a kite. <laughs> if what we think when of... my grandma was, um, she did have a hip replacement and she was pumped full of diamorphine. She had the most incredible dream that she'd been awarded a trophy for understanding all of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's mysteries. And when wow. and in the dream she was sat at the back of the auditorium and she didn't expect her name to be called. In fact she didn't even know the award was gonna happen. But when the award came, she said, Well I was I was very gracious when I went up to receive it. You know, I wasn't arrogant <laughs> at all. And if anything, I was a little bit astonished that I'd been given it. But I, I gave a convincing speech as well. You know, very humble, but also showing that I did understand the mysteries. But just an opiate fan like Sherlock Holmes would have been over the moon that your grandmother chose to use her diamorphine to journey into his own drug fantasies. But that's so interesting, Josie, because if you think about your nan's experience, right? Yeah. Sorry. If what? No, no. You're just, it's a really good illustration of it. If you think about what we've been told right about the chemical hooks the chemical hooks take you over what should have happened to your nan or my nan or all the people being given diamorphine in hospital a significant number of them should become heroin addicts right yeah. this has been studied very carefully it virtually never happens yeah. so you could have or you could have someone being pumped full of actually much stronger heroin in a hospital bed and someone on the alleyway outside taking a weaker version of the drug mm. and the person in the alleyway gets addicted and the person in the, ho- in the hospital bed doesn't and when I learned that it seemed so weird and so contrary to everything I'd ever been told to be honest, I didn't believe it Right? And I only really began to understand it when I went to Vancouver and got to know this incredible man called Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology there, who's done a series of experiments that have really opened up a different way of thinking about this. He's also just the nicest person ever. He, Bruce explained to me, 
theory of addiction that we have in our heads about it being caused by the chemical hooks come partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners could try them at home before this podcast is over if they feel a bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks, right? So there you go. That's our story, right? That totally makes sense. There was a famous American anti-drugs advert that showed this experiment and said something like, it will happen to you, you know, like that. In the 70s, Bruce came along and said, well, hang on a minute. We put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically paradise for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls, they've got tunnels, and they've got both the water bottles, the the normal water and the drugged water. And of course they try both because they don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose. You shouldn't really use with addiction with rats, but compulsive use and overdose um, when they have shit lives to none when they have really good lives. There's loads of human examples I can tell you about that, but one of the things I took from that is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. There's a guy called Peter Cohen, his professor in the Netherlands, who says, we shouldn't even call it addiction, we should call it bonding. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. And when you're happy and healthy, you will bond and connect with the people around you. But if you can't do that because you're isolated or you're traumatised or you're beaten down by life, you've got to bond and connect with something that gives you some sense of meaning. That might be pornography. That might be gambling. It might be cocaine. It might be alcohol, whatever. But that's... Books. (laughs) (laughs) All I wanted to say then was, that sounds like a great night. And then I was like, chill out, chill out. Don't make a joke. That lovely line where he says, it's not who we are, it's the cage that we live in. You know, and that's... Mm. um, Now, I wanted to pick up on something. When you were talking about being a a columnist and, you know, this every week you're arguing, kind of, you're sending out your argument. And I wonder, is that, do you think, a problem with, I suppose, the newspapers now, which are so full of opinion? And I I was meant to do Sunday Morning Live, that uh, BBC One show on Sunday where a bunch of people sit around and, uh, you know, say, I believe God says this or I believe drugs that or whatever. And I pulled out, I I said, they asked me every year and I kind of like go, no. And then this show kind of, oh, all right. And then I watched it and I went, what do I know? What do I know? You know, and you see Peter Hitchens on there and you see all these people on there and they're they're very forthright and they seem to really know. But they don't. And I wonder whether, do you look back or do you look at generally news and kind of think... The authority with which a columnist, many columnists write, based on probably scant reading because you don't have the time to really become an authority in the space between we want a column on this. Do you think that that might be, and I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about everyone there, that this churning out of opinionated columns in our newspapers is another thing that kind of, in terms of when we're talking about empathy, when we're talking about forthright attitudes, a lot of that comes also from that, kind of atmosphere you can get into an ironic position where you end up mounting polemics against polemic Mm. right and you kind of stand above the polemicists and go polemically well this is not the way to do it and i think you end up in a kind of almost a paradox i know that what i find really rewarding now is looking at one thing in depth for a really long time and i think once you can once you can so you can think about legalization for example right um, the book is not a polemical book, it's stories, as you know, but... So sometimes people in interviews... I've, must have done, I've done hundreds of interviews now. They try to steer you towards 
discussing this polemically. And there is, of course, a, uh, there are of course arguments underpinning chasing the scream. Obviously, that's you know, I come to you know I come to conclusions of things I learned from what I and experiences I had, but. If I want to argue with people about legalisation, you know, I don't want to have an argument. I'll tell them about Maricela Escobedo, mm. right? For example, one of the people I write about. Um, I think... I'll give you a go to Maricela's story. It's the most, I think it was the story in the book that most distressed and disturbed me and that I think about most. Um, uh, Maricela was a, a nurse and a... Um, she was a nurse in Ciudad Juarez, which is on the border between the city I went to. It's on the border between Mexico and the United States. It's um, the drug supply routes from from Latin America into the United States move about a lot. It's called the balloon effect. You push down one place, it pops up somewhere else. But there's never any less drugs getting through. Anyway, move around. Uh, and during the Miami Vice time, there was loads of crackdown in the route that used to go through the Caribbean. So push down on that, so it starts to go through Juarez again, right? Maricela was a nurse, and she had nothing to do with the, no one in her family used drugs, no one in her family sold drugs. And um, she also had a, uh, she was a super hardworking woman. She had a market stall where she sold like woodwork. And one day, a guy came up to her called Sergio. He was in his early 20s at the time. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm looking for a job. I've just had a baby. Give me a job. And Maricela was kind of soft-hearted. She gave him a job on a, her stall. And a few months later, she found out that her 14-year-old daughter, Ruby, was having sex with this guy who was in his early 20s, and she was obviously horrified, and she fired him. And uh, she went to the police, and the police didn't do anything, and she didn't really understand why. And um, then she found out her daughter kept running away to be with this guy. She kept going to the police. She still didn't understand why. She was puzzled. Um, why the police were being so useless. Um, anyway, then her daughter, got Ruby, got pregnant, and Maricela was devastated, and again, she kept going to be with this guy. Anyway, they had the baby. They ended up living together when Ruby was 15. Maricela kept going. And one day, just before Christmas, she went to see Ruby, and the baby was there, and Sergio was there, but Ruby wasn't there. And Sergio said, um, she, she's, she's run away with another man. She said she's never coming back. And Maricela said, what, and left her baby? No, I know my daughter, she, that's not true. And he said, well, she ain't here. Maricela left. This is a point at which a lot of people were beginning to disappear in Juarez. I'll come to why in a second. But Maricela went to the police. Police still wouldn't do anything. So she started to leaflet the neighbourhood where, where Ruby had been living with just pictures saying, have you seen my daughter? And after a while, a boy, a 15-year-old boy called Angel, called her. He was terrified. He said, I'll tell you what happened if you drive me out into the desert. So they drove out into the desert. And he said, Sergio murdered your daughter and I helped him dispose of the body. And he told her where the body was. And it was buried where there was a, a kind of pig farm where there were loads of pigs. And, and um, Maricela went there with, with her son Juan, who I got to know quite well, and um, they found the remains of, of Ruby. And um, Maricela goes back to the police, and this time they do something. They go and they arrest Sergio. Sergio's put on trial. And in the witness box, Sergio breaks down in tears and apologises to Maricela for what he did. He apologises for what he did to Ruby. And mysteriously, a few weeks later, he was acquitted on all charges and disappeared. And that's when Maricela discovered what happened. Basically, when you ban drugs, they don't disappear. They're transferred from the people who used to control them, doctors and pharmacists, to armed criminal gangs. Those armed criminal gangs are bad enough. If you live on a um, council estate in East London, where 10% of the economy is in the hands of those armed criminal gangs, that estate is a shit place to live, right? In Juarez, it's 70% of the economy. 
Um, so more people have died in the drug war violence in Mexico and Syria, uh, sorry, Mexico and Colombia than have died in Syria, according to some estimates, right? So if you've got 70% of the economy in the hands of armed criminal gangs, they obviously can just buy the state, right? So Sergio, she then discovered, was working for one of the worst drug gangs, Los Cetas, who, who Rosalio, who I got to know, worked for as well. Um, so he just bought the state. And so women were disappearing because basically if you worked for one of these gangs, you could murder women with impunity. Maricela refused to accept that she lived in a society that had no justice. She turned herself into a detective. She joined, joined together with loads of other mothers whose daughters were disappearing. And she resolved that she was going to track Sergio down. And it's a long story, but she spent three years tracking Sergio down. She walked through the desert over a thousand miles from town to town to town with Juan, her son, and with other people. And after three years, she found him. She went to the police and they let him go again. And she was heartbroken. So she went to the governor's mansion in Chihuahua. Again, she walked there through the desert. And she had this big protest in front of the, the governor's mansion. She announced she set up camp. She announced she wasn't leaving until they found him and they arrested him. She called on all the other mothers whose daughters had disappeared to come and join her. And after she'd given this amazing speech, right in front of the governor's mansion, surrounded by police, a man walked up to her and shot her in the head. And to me, I got to know her, her sons. If I want to argue about why we need to reclaim drugs from armed criminal gangs, look, I can give you all the abstract arguments, right? I can tell you about the statistics and the facts. And I want them to talk to Maricela's children and tell them what we gained from this war that was worth what they've gone through and worth the 200,000 people who've died in Colombia and Mexico. Um, so again, it's about moving... And it's not about, I think narrative is a different way of thinking about the world. And in order to have your, in order to change other, one of the things I learned is in order to change other people's minds, you have to be receptive to changing your own mind, right? It's not about, oh, I've got this argument, I'll find a nice illustration for it. It's actually about open-mindedness is itself infectious, right? And I could have gone in and I thought addiction was a disease, a brain disease, all that stuff. I thought that was the way you, you know, destigmatize that argument. Um... So, does that make sense what I've mm. said? Sorry, that was a lot, yeah. very long answer, no, but, but it makes loads of sense when you think about like the way that people talk about how charities manage to hook people, and they go, you know, they go in and they say like we have to tell the story of one person because we can't really explain to you in a statistical way what's happening, and only by like relating on a humane level can we convince people and that's how so i went to obviously places where they have moved beyond the war on drugs you know colorado uruguay um switzerland and portugal and that was how they won it that well actually it's interesting switzerland's a bit different and i think actually has quite a lot to teach us about britain but i'll give you an example of portugal first if that's all right oh you haven't got time oh sorry are they telling us to run out of time oh, oh no. sorry so no, people can read chasing the screen to find yeah. out how they yeah, persuaded so people to clever way of selling it <laughs> <laughs> just to tell you one fact that they so more than a decade ago they decriminalized all drugs in portugal injecting drug use fell by 50 percent wow. overdose massively fell virtually nobody in portugal wants to go back everywhere i went where they moved beyond the war on drugs the same pattern it's unbelievable controversial at first then people see the results it's not a magic bullet it's like but there's a significant smoking in pubs yeah everyone was raging about it now they love it don't have to wash your hair <laughs> well we didn't we didn't we didn't ask about many other people's books the uh, no. what was the book just very quickly what was it as you were, can i recommend a, a different book which is um berlin imagine a city by rory mclean is the book that's made me most cry this year it's the story of berlin 500 years of berlin told through 22 different people wow. at different points in the history of berlin some of them famous like marlena dietrich and president kennedy some of them not fucking amazing so it's beautiful 
book. It's like the London biography, but with less, sti- like less, fewer rats. dry descriptions of how people met and the structures that they met with. Is this the Peter Ackroyd? Yeah. Book? Is it worth reading? I've never read. Oh, it. Oh, it's great! But then there's loads of bits in it where I was like, "You did not need to go into this much detail about the protocol of the Anglo-Saxon meetings. <laughs> you didn't need to do that." <laughs> I should just say I have told people the most depressing story from my book. Yeah. Most of the book is not like that, but the yeah. No, that's fine. We we have a you know it, it's uh, it was it's a very it's a very interesting book and it does uh, blow away a lot of kind of preconceptions uh, that I think many of us may approach that issue with. So thank you very much for joining us, oh, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk another time about the uh, other books as well. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if, uh, in the words of Josie Long, if you are feeling a little bit flush and you would like to support us, then you can do that either via Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode, you will get exclusive bonus episodes. And every week to one of our Patreon supporters, we will be giving away a bag of books as well, including sometimes by authors who've been on and lots of things that we like but don't fit in our house anymore. You can also make a one-off donation of any amount through PayPal. and You don't need to have a PayPal account to do that. Also, all episodes, reading lists and donation links are available from cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Hold up. 